Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. We're thankful that you're joining us today. Got a big two-hour show. Uh, we are here at the Hotel Andra, the gorgeous uh, Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle and at 4th and Virginia. Right in the midst of all a bunch of my things, right? Dahlia Bakery, Serious Pie, Lola, the Hot Stove, all of that. So glad that you could join us today. We've got a big show. Ben Campbell is here of Ben's Breads. He's going to open a new shop up on Finney Ridge. Looking forward to that. Uh, our listeners are clamoring for more ideas on vegetarian entrees. I wonder how many listeners that is, <laughs> Ms. Hinckley. All us vegetarians was Pam, and she's eating yeah, lamb chops. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so Pam's, uh, Pam's looking for new ideas on vegetarian entrees, attributes that we love about uh, sablefish or black cod. There's so many. I don't know where to begin. Yeah. So that's going to be Definitely one of the easiest ones to cook yeah. around. Who doesn't lo- uh, love a, a coquettish coquette? Mm-hmm. I've, I don't know that I've ever had one, but I'm looking forward to making one through <laughs> verbally through Chef Terry's mouth. And okay. uh, last week we talked about Napoleon products, and including the fact that the olive oil and artichokes are their best sellers with Tony Magnano. I found out from Armandino. I had dinner with Armo uh, on Sunday night, and I found out from Armandino that the Merlinos and the Magnanos were arch enemies in well, the I, I 30s. That's mm-hmm. kind of what he hinted. I, he did, yeah, he I did, did not realize that. And it seems like there's still, I mean, I don't think there's bad blood still, but there's memories. Memories, for memories sure. Memories of what's going on with the Merlinos and the Mignanos. And you know how many stories goes with that for generation and generation. Yeah, exactly. That's why it doesn't go away. Lastly, we're going to play Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs. Uh, we do have a little surprise taste of the week, though. Uh, Jim is here. He's on the mic. Uh, you might know him from the Four Dudes and a Tomato. What is that called? What was that called? Four Guys. Four Guys. <laughs> Four Dudes. Four Guys and a Tomato. That's <laughs> and Jim, uh, you have um, you have brought uh, a copy of Terry's book. I've never seen a copy before in public. <laughs> I've seen like eight thousand at Terry's house, but I've never seen an actual purchase. I use them as doorstop. Did you buy it? Did you purchase it? I actually purchased. Wow, I've never seen one of those before. That's fantastic, Chef. You no, must I be so excited. You, they're, they're dispersed around the world. That's why you can't find them. Okay. Uh, what did you? Why are you here today? What did you bring for Chef Terry? Well, I came to thank him because he had a big influence on uh, the best birthday party that I've ever had. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Two days ago, I turned seventy. Holy smokes! You need CPR. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my uh, my friends and family decided throw me a party and they started by saying well let's pick a nice restaurant and no offense tom but they decided no restaurant in seattle was good enough mm-hmm. for my party mm-hmm. so they created their own pop-up restaurant nice oh, wow uh, very uh, good idea for you i just gave uh, terry the menu he can uh, he, that is he can that is it. incredible so you're telling me then each one of your guests cook one of those cooks uh, no, my daughter-in-law, who uh-huh. used to work for sure, you, Aaron, Aaron um, pulled out her, her old uh, server's uniform and uh, did an uh, a entire dining room in their house and convinced my son, who uh, became the chef, to dress up as well. So oh, I, this I is so a, charming. I, I have Very a picture cool. for you. And there were... 12 guests there, and uh, wow. it was a formal dinner 
served with courses of wine. It was a seven-course dinner, I believe. I and one for each decade. Definitely one, one Roveresque. And uh, uh, Terry's, uh, Terry's food was on the menu. And I'm not even dead and they're doing this. Yes. <laughs> Imagine what's going to happen when I die. Yeah. I mean... It's going to be a banquet feast like nobody's business. Right. Or when I die, maybe you Well, yeah, when you die, too. <laughs> I'm ahead of you. <laughs> well, that, that doesn't mean anything. Okay, so, Terry, we got a, a minute or two. So Read off quick, some of the things. The quick menu, burrata, blood orange, coriander, lavender oil. Goes with a Vouvray Chenin Blanc. Very nice match. Uh, beet and goat cheese tartelette with sweet yes. onion puree. I love that. And a pea soup rolled with rolled goat cheese croutons. A Gerber's Traminer with that. From uh, wow, Senor Boropier, 2012. Ooh, mm. someone's nice. got a seller. Uh, seared Alaska weather vane scallops with pickled daikon and apple salad with a chili jam. That sounds delicious as well. And then a sorbet with pink grapefruit vermouth. I know that one. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Chateauneuf du Pape Les Cailloux, 2019, to go with braised pig chicks, celery root, and barberry salad. Wow. Oh, wow. And that, pig, it, that pig has definitely got a frown now. He's got no cheeks. No yeah. cheeks. He's got no cheeks. Uh, and then to finish, a chocolate marquis with torch meringue, tequila, caramel, and spiced almond. And that's served with a Chateau d'Ikem 2018. Oh, oh nice wow. and young and beautiful. Wow. How many dollars worth of wine was that? Wow, that's uh, it, it was probably thousands. good nine hundred dollars wine. I don't. Well, you could know. round it to a thousand. <laughs> so, and uh, they made their uh, uh, creme fraiche out of your book. Even went so far instead of uh, honey in the one uh, recipe, and the Jeff went over to his farm on Port uh, Orchard and tapped maple trees and made. His own maple syrup to go. What? With that. This was a special did. I, literally, I want to. You want to be seventy again, don't I, you? I won't. <laughs> It'll be one hundred and forty before I get. No, this no, again. but you want to do it again. Oh, I do want to do it again. Yeah, stay so, at seventy. Yeah, I want to uh, nominate them for James Beard Award. <laughs> yes, absolutely. They pulled it off flawless. I can so, just give you Terry's if you want. So Tom, <laughs> yeah. that was my taste of the week. How did you come up? <laughs> yeah, I had popcorn. <laughs> no, that was that's fantastic. Happy birthday! Thank you. Happy birthday! And uh, may the next seventy be as good as the first one. As oh, we said. I'm, I'm yeah, sure. Absolutely. This was literally. But the this best. is if you keep eating like this, you might not make it to seventy-one. So you need to uh, just make that very special. You've always said, uh, Julia Childs, just you know, you don't do it every moderation. night. Moderation. Everything in moderation, including moderation. Moderation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When we come back, it's crispy croquette time here on the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven-three FM. Of the ones who love you. 
It's time for Coquettish Coquettes here on the Hot Stove Society Show. We're in the Hot Stove Kitchens. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And chef, uh, that was quite the ode to you on yes. the last segment, uh, yeah, uh, very, doing the dinner in your honor. And Erin said she set the table entirely up like a rover's table. Yeah, and she did. Uh, and Erin, how long did you wait tables there? 20 years or 20 years ago? <laughs> she left there 15 years ago. I know. And according, looking at the table, she stole a lot of stuff from Rose. I, gar- I, gar- I guarantee you she was the top one, too. She was definitely uh, our top server. So. All right. Uh, crispy croquettes. Chef, uh, I, I have made croquettes. Me, too. But I have made more country-style croquettes. What's that mean? Which means that I've taken mashed potatoes, and I've put, like, deviled ham or something like that inside and uh, I, or cheese, and I've fried them, and I've served them. Right. But I feel like you probably make a little fancier. You probably make what Pamela called a coquette-ish. Coquette-ish. So what do you call croquette? What Pam? What do you call a coquettish croquette? Something that is enticing and light, and inviting you to come back for the next bite. Not whimsical. Heavy. Yeah, whimsical. So, See, mine are heavy. So I wouldn't personally. I don't put anything in my croquette. Besides okay, see, potato and seasoning and fresh chives. So it's just mashed potatoes. Mashed potato. Yeah. And then I enrich it, enrich it with an egg yolk mm-hmm. or two. Depends how much I have. And, how much um, egg yolks or how much potatoes? So, <laughs> let's just say a cup, of potato, uh, cup and a half of potato for one egg yolk. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, mix the whole thing together and then No it. butter, no cheese, no nothing. Nothing like that. Wow. No, because uh, when I make mashed potato, it's already... 40% butter, 60% well, so potato. so you do have butter in there. Yeah. I have a lot of butter in there. I don't okay. need to add any more butter. I'm not talking, usually I don't make fresh mashed potato to make croquette. I make croquette out of leftover mashed potato. That's when I do croquette. And that's what it was invented from. Oh, how, a good way to use up the leftover. Correct. It was invented potato. from, you know, that and um, pomme dauphine. Yeah. Pomme dauphine is the same thing. It was invented from... Leftover. There is many recipes in France that use leftover mashed potato, and uh, and very few of those recipes are created just to make mashed potato. Mashed potato is created to be a mashed potato, and then when you have leftovers, you take that and make other dishes, such as um, like even when you make uh, parmentier, which is a traditional uh, what you guys call. Uh, beef casserole or something, mm-hmm. mashed potato, ground beef, mashed potato, ground like a shepherd's beef, pie kind of shepherd's thing, pie, or... and then breadcrumb on top and baked. Mm. That's also created from leftover mashed potato. So I went to your restaurant many times, and I never had mashed potatoes. Oh, we've had mashed potato almost every day for the day okay. life, life of Rovers. <laughs> because really? you didn't order them. Really? I guess <laughs> I just you didn't, didn't order them. It came with your dishes. Well, you're the one who sent the food out. Yeah. yeah. So it was piped onto the plate. Hmm. I love mashed potato. I'm a, um, yeah. obviously. Okay, so it. now we've got mashed potatoes. You said yours have, are like Robuchons, right? They have about 40% butter. Right. And uh, that's a lot of butter. That is a lot. But you feel the need to add egg yolks to it it's, because it's, it's not quite fatty enough. No, it's because of the, what you know very well is when you rewarm mashed potato that has that much butter in it, it wants to separate. Break. yeah. So the, the egg yolk is a binder in, a, in some ways that keeps the fats together once it's all mixed together. And I roll it in breadcrumb, really, you know, nicely, but really fine breadcrumb. The finer the breadcrumb, the more you can put onto the mashed potato. And then brown butter, blonde butter, pardon me, not brown butter, blonde butter, and then give it a nice little roasting in the pan, 
you know, enough butter to... So you, you kind of brown it and turn it and you get yeah. it all brown all the way around. Correct. And then finish it in the oven. It's just enough to heat it through. Correct. Right. And then you have this beautiful crisp... Don't you think um, it'd be nice with a little twig of comté in the middle? Oh, no, no, no. I, there is nothing wrong. Uh, listen, I'm not poo-pooing down. I'm just I think you were. You. No, no. <laughs> you said, so, in my croquette, I have nothing. But I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing in it except chopped chives. Except a lot of butter. Chopped okay. chives, too. All right. Oh, and chopped chives yeah. in the potato. In the potato. Okay. I love chopped chives in, uh, as a bite through mashed potato. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good... You know, a little gentle bite of onion kind of idea. Um, you could definitely add very chopped, fine ham. You could add other things into the mashed potato, no problem. Well, that's Jeez. why I was intrigued, because the article I was reading in Food and Wine had variations uh, and suggested even maybe a sweet potato croquette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that would totally work. And the one um, that I'm going to try next, though, is leek and mushroom. And what I, uh, the accompaniments also captured my attention because they often had some sort of tangy side sauce. Right. Almost always a creme fresh or sour yeah, cream. So yeah, so leek and mushroom, make sure you saute them correctly and dry them. As because in, they're so wet. The they're going to be so wet, then, then if you put raw leeks into your mashed potato, there's a big chance. And once the heat gets to the middle, your leeks are going to leak into, and your fryer is going to start going... A little bit bonker. Even more so your mushrooms. Mushrooms yeah. are 90% mushrooms. Yeah, water. you would have to do them completely so separately So you saute them first. on the side, and then you cool them off, and then you put them into your mashed potato, and it's fine. I like the idea, personally, of a, a little surprise when you cut into it. Rather than, yeah. like on a salmon croquette, it's almost always just flaked salmon mixed with the mashed potatoes, and then it's a, it's a big croquette. Uh, I like the idea more like a dumpling where the croquette becomes the wrapper Around a little surprise center. Right. You know what would be cool is if you had those half dome uh, mats where you could do mashed potato. You you oil the the mat. You put mashed potato in halfway circle and you put a Rockwell egg and then you put mashed potato on top Ooh. and you roll the whole thing up and then put it in breadcrumb very gently and then fry it. Then the middle would be a Rockwell egg. By the time you get it, the, the quail egg would be cooked. Would be cooked just like enough. Gentle, just enough. Yeah, you may you may make those for us. We would we would like that. Um, the other thing you can I'll do I'll be is here tomorrow. You don't have to week. use breadcrumbs, right? Uh, what are some other options? Well, uh, sesame seeds would yeah. be yeah. an option to be. Uh, they'll stick beautifully. They'll brown up nicely. The nice and crunchy. So make sure your oil is not too hot because you know sesame seed will instantly. If your oil oil is too hot, it will instantly brown. So Isn't you that what black sure. sesame seeds are? <laughs> they have burned, they have burned sesame seeds. Burned sesame seeds. Uh, the other thing you talked about, sauce, coriander cream. There's a product you can buy in the grocery called coriander chutney, and it's really bright and tangy, and it's an easy mix with sour cream. We've used it for years at the Palace Kitchen as the coriander cream for the chicken wings, the spicy chicken wings. No, I do not know this product. Yeah, it's just in a jar. It's, it's, it's a nice product, and... Uh, so, yeah, that's just something to think about. It's a coriander chutney. chutney. They call it chutney, and it's just pureed coriander with vinegars and You know what sugar. else is good? You know that ground nut dipping that uh, Mamnoon has? The Muhumara? Yeah, Mahamara. Mahamara. You take that and you mix that with a little sour cream, and you put your croquette on top. Mm-hmm. Pretty yes. damn good. Yes, please. And some chopped cilantro. Lime yogurt. Really good. Um, salt cod is where you see today... You. You almost uh, always see salt cod mixed with mashed potatoes right. to become that a croquette. That is a classic. Yeah. And what would you put on that to give you that little bright 
I love romescu sauce with I like a nice like vinaigrette with that, like a warm vinaigrette around it. Like you make a patty of mashed potato and salt cod and then a little breadcrumb and you bake it. So you have a nice little crispy top. And then you put a warm vinaigrette with maybe red wine vinegar, chopped shallots, a um, bit of salad oil or, or olive oil. And then uh, you finish that with a little bit of chopped anchovies in, into the dressing. And then you put that around mm. your patty of... Yes. Salt, cod, and I prefer potato. romescu. <laughs> I know that. That's two, I like that. Two fantastic options. Uh, apparently, there's been a waterfall. Waterfall of requests for vegetarian entrees. A waterfall. A, yeah, a landslide. A it's just to boil the vegetables. Cornucopia of questions about vegetarian entrees to our hippie producer Pamela Hinckley, uh, and we're going to tackle that next on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. Welcome back. Apparently, uh, listener requests for vegetarian options are flooding in. And we're going to tackle that right now. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Uh, you know, there's less farm produce around these days. And for another, what, couple of months, yep. we have our choice of carrots, squash. Turnip, I love how Brussels sprouts are okay to eat all winter, even though they're not growing at all in anyone's garden right now. I know. Isn't that funny, funny that how, they become the winter yeah. ve- green vegetable? I think it's because they probably storage well is how mm-hmm. that right. ends up happening, but... But turnip, parsnips, all those root vegetables, celery root. Right. And also, you know, green, green from winter, you know, the kale and the... Mushrooms that are, you know, hot, not hothouse grown so much as in-house grown. Right. like that. So, Pamela, tell us about this listener groundswell uh, about vegetarian <laughs> entrees. How did well, this happen? What, I, what I spurred this was, on? Uh, I, we know uh, from our guests uh, in Hot Stove Society... And listener comments that people are trying to reduce the amount of meat that they're eating. We do know this. We do know this okay. as a fact. Like uh, every party that we have here, there's always vegetarians. Okay, hundred percent of the time now. Yeah. So we we just need to uh, think about ways that vegetables are going to satisfy us for a full meal. One of my tricks to convince my husband that dinner is complete with without uh, an animal product is to make sure that I roast something to a high, crispy uh, degree. Particularly, mushrooms are so good at that with the red boat uh, sea salt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're putting animal product on it. <laughs> anchovy salt. Yeah, that's called It's an not an animal. <laughs> it's an anchovy. Yeah. It's called, I love it's that. called fish sauce. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's but that's okay. That. I'm not judging. I'm not judging at all. I like building from a base of... A Roasted squash, perhaps some uh, fried chickpeas, sautéed spinach, maybe a little feta, and then, um, if I have time, some pearl couscous. Right. And that, that <laughs> satisfies color. Uh, it's got some weight to it. Everything is in there. So you get, you get all the different components that I would well, be looking for. Yeah, and I think what's important for me as a kind of non-vegetarian, as somebody, I, I don't look down on it. I just don't think about it so much. 
I like when veg- vegetable entrees have components to it. Yeah. Rather than, say, getting a big bowl of lentils with turmeric and ginger and maybe a sour cream garnish or something That's like that. That's not an entree. Well, it, it is That's for a lot of people. I understand it is for a lot of people, though, and that, it's just not... That's where I get turned off. You know, what you just talked about where you could, say, have a squash soup with a mushroom duck cell and then you have some components to yeah. it or make it more interesting and I more palatable to me. Yeah, you need the variety of texture yeah. instead of just a mushy pile of barley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is where the idea of creating your some of that food ahead of time, you can do like layered of root vegetable gratin kind of idea in a Pyrex pan and have that staying in the fridge for a week. You know, and during that week, you can use those components different ways. You can use the gratin as a side garnish to something else, like sauteed kales and sauteed mushroom and uh, crispy chickpeas. You can do a kind of like a, a component of that and then the gratin next to it. So it's not just the gratin every day. Exactly. It needs a, those other... Don't textures. call me to your house if you're serving the same gratin for a week. Just <laughs> please don't invite me. I would not that you would. You. I would love to impress you on how you're going to use it. Um, can we dip into the cauliflower brining? Because the cauliflower steak thing is still very popular. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, as a base for building a vegetarian entree. And I've heard different results on whether or not you get any benefit from brining your cauliflower? I've never brined cauliflower. And I've done a lot of things, Are but you I've never a wet brined. Wet brine or a dry wet. brine? A wet brine. Yeah, so I would never wet brine something I'm trying to get crisp. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I hear what you're saying, but people do that with chicken and turkey all the time. Right, except they dry it up and the water doesn't stay in it. But the problem with cauliflower is it swallows the water, the liquid. So that's where my problem depends on how long you brine, too. Depends on what you brine with. If you do a dry brine, that's different than a wet brine. But a wet brine on cauliflower, if I'm trying to roast them, for some reason, I need to try that because just to satisfy my curiosity. Yes, and report back. But you're going to dehydrate the cauliflower when you're roasting in the oven. I think the brine goes away. So to me, the bigger issue is uh, is the saltiness level. Because, right. you know, when, when we roast, too. you know, the best cauliflower is roasted way past its done point sure. and then taken to a dehydrated kind of crispy finish, right, on, in, in high heat. Yeah. So that brine's going to dry up. I mean, I'm definitely understanding that, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, what are some other uh, vegetarian entrees? You mean at Rover's you always had a five-course vegetable degustation menu? And the way, the, curve. the way then it would really, um, for me, the way I would always think about it, is a progressive idea of richness. So is that, but is that how, like to answer Pam's question, is that how you would, if you had people over for dinner and you were uh-huh. going to go vegetarian, right. you would course it, not necessarily Correct. put them all in the same dish. Correct. Pamela loves a rainbow on a plate, but I like it more coarse so it's not all on top of each other. Correct. Yeah. I would do, I would probably do like I used to do at Rovers, which is, you know, you start with a cold, then you go to a soup or some kind of a consomme or whatever, something of that nature. Then you go into more like if you're looking into um, roasted cauliflower or some kind of a nature of a more robust vegetable, you know, mixed with something else, obviously. And then you finish with, let's say, for example, uh, polenta and, and crispy mushroom or whatever of that nature, something much more robust oh, and more that. woody. So, you know, items like this, and that's the progression I would use for a mix, for a multi-course meal. Um, if you're trying to do rainbow on a plate, to me, it's a different idea it's a good idea but it's a different idea so rainbow on a plate requires a little bit more uh, stuff in your refrigerator 
in terms of the rainbow of the of the plate needs to be in there, and also requires more cooking on the spot. Unless you're doing raw, it's requiring more pots and pan, and many people get turned off by that. So that's why I was kind of like hinting on, you know, you should have a stew of lentil, and you should have a, a gratin of root vegetable, and, and you have your raw greens on the bottom, and then you take the raw greens and you complete your meals with that, where you do the quick sauteed kale or sauteed, you know, green of the beets or whatever you want to do in terms of leafy green, and you finish with that and your mushroom. Then you put that together as components. Now it's much easier. You have your lentils, you have your gratin, you have your sauteed greens, and um, you, know, you finish your dish like that. Mm-hmm. that to me, that would make, that would, that's how I would get around multi, you know, like a rainbow plate right. on a nightly basis. So there's lots of other angles that become more... Uh, traditional, so for say uh, enchiladas, right. you know, we're so used to chicken enchiladas. What do you right. want, chicken or beef or pork or whatever it is? To to replace that with roasted mushrooms, chunks of seared squash, uh, potatoes, so mashed potatoes, things like that, and then roll up your enchiladas. Yeah. I would bet most people would barely miss the meat part of that. Because so, once you do like the chicken and with the salsa verde and all that kind of stuff, it's sometimes hard to taste yeah. the chicken itself. We did that last week at home. We had uh, little tacos with uh, leftover sweet potato roasted, uh, roasted broccoli, uh, pomegranate seeds. Wow. And uh, what? I had something else in there. I can't remember right now. Oh, a romanesco. I had a roasted romanesco, and I sliced some of that. That's what we had for dinner. Mm-hmm. It was really delicious. Very satisfying. Oh, we chilled with a little sour cream on top and some cilantro. So it wasn't vegan, but it was vegetarian. It wasn't vegan. It was vegetarian. Yeah. Did you make your own tortilla, chef? Uh, no, but we buy corn tortilla. I'm a big fan of corn tortilla. So there's other things uh, in here, Pamela, that, uh, that you had suggested, things like falafel loaf, which makes me want to vomit a little Cringe bit. Cringe a little. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you say vomit? Yeah. Did you say vomit? <laughs> falafel loaf. I mean, I love falafel, but I like the little crispy fried balls of falafel. But a falafel loaf to me. The other thing you suggested, which I really love, is a brothy mushroom noodle bowl. I think that would be up your alley. If you're eating pho and to have like an onion stock with uh, lots of different mushrooms and and fresh herbs like cilantro. Do what I do. Every mushroom you use in your house, you cut the stem and you put them in the freezer and you make a wonderful mushroom stock. Yep. The leek I tops, have, I have all sorts of things. Three quarts of mushroom stock in my house right now in the freezer. Yeah. What I do is I freeze them. What a in, wonderful base to start from. Yeah. Well, because it, yeah, and, and it's just extra flavor. And next time I make a chicken stock, I probably will match the two together. Only because I'm not vegetarian, so I don't need to worry about that. But I mix the two together, and now I have a very intense six quarts of beautiful stock. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with using all those stems in a chicken stock no, or beef stock. But keep them. All right, let's uh, let's jump into black cod when we come back. Is that mm. good for you, Chef? From vegetarian to fish. Love myself some black cod. I know. Radio. I know you're going to rock this it's segment. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. I'm going to keep well my vegetables card off and sell my vegetables. I love you most of all. My favorite vegetable. Oh, vegetable. Oh, 
to the Hot Stove Society Show. Yahoo! It's Tom and Terry in the kitchen. Uh, your chapeau is looking dashing today. Thank so, you. Yes. Just like the fish sauce on the veggies. Exactly. That's our favorite Pam moment right there of the day. We always have one, and uh, her vegetable entree with fish sauce is another. Uh, <laughs> black cod. You have an interest in black cod. Uh, you know, I it's sure one of my do. favorites. Uh, I put it on the menu way back when at Cafe Sport, the miso uh, marinated black cod. That's what got me started. Really? Recipe. Way back then? Yeah. Wow, isn't that funny? You know, when I first put that on the menu at Cafe Sport, I had had it. Hite, the chef at Mikado down at 5th and Jackson, had made it for my birthday. That's the first time I had had the miso or kazuzuke black cod and fell in love with it. And Many then, chefs have taken it since then. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Harry down at, at uh, Mutual Fish made huge batches of it, but uh, always made it with very large black cods. And so a lot of times when you go to the grocery store, you can get black cod, but it's these tiny little fillets, and it's just not black cod. Right. I mean, quite literally it is, but it's much better fish when it gets to be that three pounds and up. Mm. Uh, it's much fattier and more luscious, and you almost always want to cook it skin on because that skin caramelizes so beautifully in the pan. You've probably done that a million yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. So black cod is a, a, or sable fish. You'll find it often around the world smoked. You know, if you mm. look at all the Jewish delis in Manhattan, it's just full of smoked sable fish uh, because it's so moist and oily. So. It's a great baking fish. I mean, it, especially for people who are not used to cook fish at home and want to try on fish, I think it's a great try-out fish because anything, I mean, you put it in the oven, 10 minutes later you get this gorgeous piece of fish. And it's kind of hard to overcook, Bake. don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, got, it's oily enough that it can resist to a lot of forgiveness. It's, it, it will go through a lot of mistake. You know, if you overcook your fish in a cod, it'd still be okay. So that's, that's what's so... Very forgiving. Yeah, and it's very good for a beginner, somebody who wants to learn to cook fish in their, in their home. First of all, it doesn't smell. <laughs> Second of all, you bake it, and you can put fresh herb on top, you know, things like this. And, you know, you can start very slowly and then go from that, and then you can learn to cook it in the pan. Uh, in the pan, you have to be a little bit cautious, because there will be a fish that's kind of want to fall apart a little bit. So, but you know, these are again, these are great fish to use for first step into that direction. You know? I, um, my local fish market, Fresh Fish, had just some beautiful fillets this week, fresh, and uh, I broiled it. Yeah, yeah, which perfect. was super easy. Yeah. Um, both sides, but um, can we talk about the skin for a minute because? Uh, it, it's beautiful, the contrast of that black skin and the luscious white. But do people eat it, the skin? Of course. Yes. You just got to make sure that you uh, scale it. Yeah. It's really typical when you want to eat the skin. And then if you're going to eat the skin on a black cod, uh, Chef, I think we would both agree that you want to put a little oil in the bottom of your pan and put skin side down to start and get a nice hard sear and render the skin almost to a crackling then flip it over and finish it off. Uh, so so in, you're not going to get much but a soggy skin if you right. just pop it under and, until in, it's cooked. In the restaurant situation, especially in the older days, we had those oval metal platter that we would use. A sizzle plate. Yeah, a sizzle plate. So you just put a little bit of oil on the bottom. You put your cut. But your, before that, you put your plate under the broiler for ah, quite some time. Good. So the plate is yeah. super, super hot. So you take that and you put your cod or your fish skin down on that platter 
So now the skin is getting crisp while you put it under the broiler and the top is getting cooked as well. And that's Love how it. you get a piece of fish to be well, crispy. Well, I flipped mine over under the broiler. That's a bit different, yeah. So I could try to get some crispness. And it, uh, it separated really beautifully. Right. You know, a lot what of do you mean separated? Uh, came off the fillet so that I could have the skin piece separate. Oh, I see. So you probably didn't eat the skin if I know I you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with that either. But you could have taken that skin off and pan fried it to get it crisp and then served it as a garnish on top yeah, of your fillet. Keep it under the salamander. And I also want to talk about the bones. Yes. Well, it's not like salmon. You can, you can try and pin bone a black cod, but they are hard to get out. Exactly. So yeah. typically what you do when you fillet it, it's, uh, you know, it's like rock cod. It's in the round, you know, and you've just got to sacrifice those, that little belly piece and then just go with the main part of the fillet. When I say sacrifice, you don't throw it away or you just either it's make just a, not as beautiful. serve it as a separate piece to go along with the, the loin part of the fish or you put those in, a, if you, depending on how much you're working with. Like if I had a party, a group of 10 or 12 coming over for dinner, I'd have enough to smoke my black cod bellies. And then you just have to cut the bones out. You can't really pull them out with tweezers. So you, you cut probably that, try to do, right? Like with a sandwich You tweezer. cut that piece off, those pieces off, and you keep it in the freezer. And next time you have a little time, you make a little fish stock. Or fish soup. or Fish soup or whatever you want to yeah. do. But the other way you can do it is if you cook the cod all the way, you can then pull the bones out. Right. It will, it will break a little bit the the meat. You know, it won't stay compact. But what do you care? It's easy to pull out when it's cooked. You know, once it's cooked, what do you the, care. The bones. <laughs> come out. She wants well, a pretty piece of fish. Is I what do. She cares. I do. But I I couldn't navigate the bones. Yeah. When it was raw. Yeah. It's another and thing it, is is when you work with fish, just like meat, uh, big pieces of meat, is to learn the you know the the physiology of the of the actual fish, where the bones are, and so on and so forth. It's important to know that, so it's easier when, when you want to pluck them, you're not looking at the tail, you're looking at the head, you know, towards the head. And the it's are. got enough of a, a specific uh, flavor that um, I'm wondering if you recommend anything other than a butter lemon. Well, or... you know, the classic, what I mentioned earlier was Kasazuke black yeah. cod, mm-hmm. right? So that's got a marinade of the lees from sake tanks. So uh, sake is brewed like beer, right? And the rice powder or, or bits come down to the bottom of the tank, and that becomes the lees, L-E-E-S. And uh, that is mixed with miso and brown sugar and mirin and uh, whatever else. Uh, that's probably about it, but whatever else you want. And uh, it's got the, the brown lees before it's been cleaned. You can find it two different ways in the grocery it's kind of brown, and that hasn't been, um, uh, what's the word I want? It's still got a fermentation uh, yeast and stuff like that in the mix, whereas the other stuff has been kind of cleaned up. The white chalky lees uh, has been cleaned up, and so it's, it's just different flavors. I like before they clean it up, kind of the fermenting. More, more intense. Yeah, more intense. Yeasting, exactly. yeasty character. And so then you put the fish in that, and you can actually, reef. a lot of people, especially Japanese, freeze the black cod at that point because when you pull it out of the freezer and slack it out. It, you know, when you slack fish, right, freezing expands the cell structure. When you slack it out or when you thaw it, the it moisture comes back. out of the fish a little bit, and which intensifies in black cod. Some fish that makes it dry. In black cod, it intensifies the oils. You've got mm. that much oil left to water ratio, and it's, that's what makes it so darn luscious, yeah. right? So darn melts, good. Melts on sight. Yeah. So 
Tasty. Luscious the flakiness. We love it. The flakiness of that meat is beautiful. But I mean, when you're cooking with that kasuzuke, it's got sugar in it. What happens right. when you have sugar in that? Caramelized. It caramelizes, right? And that's what gives. Oh, so it's become when, one of the most popular dishes ever, right? That's miso when you're cum. happy when yes, you get exactly. caramelization. I love me some caramelization. Hour two. We're going to welcome Ben Campbell in. Talk about his new, uh, well, his old and his new uh, in his life of bread projects here in Seattle. On Cairo Radio, we are the Hot Stove Society Show coming to you from 4th of Virginia, downtown Seattle, the Hotel Andra. Come see us sometime. Buy a ticket. It's Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show. We're having a blast here. It's uh, hour number two. Uh, Chef, are you up for this? I am definitely up for this. Okay, hour number two, and we're gonna uh, we have uh, food for thought, tasty trivia to wrap up this hour. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about cooking or cream poaching slash frying artichokes <laughs> and eggs. Yep, but first, it's a hard concept to wrap your head around. But I technically, know. from a chef's perspective. Once you understand what they're doing, it's, it's very simple. Okay. But so I think gonna... it'd be even more delicious if we had some of Ben's bread with it. You yeah. think so? <laughs> right. Well, then well, let's start with Ben for let's this, start uh, beginning with of ben. this hour. All we know is it's Ben's bread. We don't even know Ben's last name. Campbell. Ben Campbell. How it's are bread. you, sir? It's Ben's bread, actually. <laughs> there, there you go. It's like Dave's uh, seed bread, right? So this is the new thing. It's just put Exactly. It. Yeah. His was killer bread. His was killer bread. Yeah. And he's in yeah. prison, right? So uh, did you spend any time in so. prison? What's your criteria <laughs> no. for being a baker? <laughs> Prison, usually. That's where we all learn it. That's where we all That's where they meet. You are working with my niece-in-law right now, and you're, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how you got started in bread, and then maybe in our second segment, you can, we can talk a little bit more about sourdough. There's sure, some frustration yeah. going out there with the breads right now, because everyone during COVID started making bread. But not everyone has been successful. And they've bought all the tools. Yes. But yeah. there's magic that has to happen somewhere around those tools. So I want to hear about that in the second segment. Okay. First segment, tell us about you and your history. And Yeah. So I was a line cook working in restaurants in town. And I got to Lark up before in their original location. Uh-huh. and Up on 12th, right? Up on yeah. 12th, yeah. And uh, right when I started working there, we had this meeting about taking ownership of a bunch of different things that we bought and start making them in-house, like bread or cheese or, you know, um, charcuterie, I think, is another one. And so a couple of the people in the kitchen, it was a pretty small staff, but I basically was like, I would really love to try to figure out bread. I hadn't done it professionally. I had kind of inquired in culinary school and not really gotten anywhere. There wasn't really, like, a lot in the program I was doing. And so I just started reading books, and I baked a loaf, brought it in for... John, my boss, and he was like, great, can you do four a night? 
and I went home and thought I was going to cry because I was like, I have no <laughs> idea how I'm going to make. Like I did this once, you know. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my my other boss, Lauren, who's at Cafe Juanita now, helped me kind of figure out a production schedule, and it was pretty fun. Like everyone in the kitchen got to do it. Like we all learned how to make the bread and everything. It was pretty great. Um, and then once we moved to the new location, I switched to mornings, stopped working the line at night, and kind of built out a, you know, or helped build out like a pastry and bread program when we started making all the breads in-house, like burger buns, everything. So That's ambitious. Yeah, so, it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot to do. Yeah, I think, I think people don't realize that, how much <clears throat> commitment that is. If you're going to make all your bread in a restaurant, it's a very, very serious commitment because bread is basically every single day. <clears throat> Let's say you're in a restaurant that's open six days a week or five days a week. You still have to be here to make the bread the day before. Because bread takes a lot of prep. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And most of ours are, most of the stuff I've been doing is, if not, or it's mostly sourdough. And even the stuff that's not, I still tend to do over a couple days. And so, yeah, I've spent a lot of Christmases in the restaurants I work in or now in my own bakery <laughs> environment, like feeding starters, mm-hmm. mixing and shaping loaves, you know, Thanksgiving, same thing, so... Let's go back to that time in the beginning when yeah, sure. you just said, I think I'd like to own bread at this restaurant. Yeah. You know, if you're looking for someone to own something, what was the most influential book? You said you went home and read books and was yeah, there one sure. book that really was like that resonated with you? Yeah, I think early on that was kind of when I feel like that was, I think, only the first Tartine book. Well, the Tartine bread book was out. Sorry. Uh, there was also the Tartine cookbook, too, but. Um, that tartine bread book, like it's 40 pages before there's even a recipe and it was just a story. And I think I just read the story and it just spoke to me in a way I was, you know, pretty surprised by, I uh-huh. thought I kind of wanted to go to the chef route and, you know, I was working towards that. Um, and it just sort of changed that book. There's a few other ones. There's like, uh, Jeffrey Hommelman's bread book is really outstanding. Even just the artwork. I love the hand drawings in that book. And then there's this older cookbook. It's not even a bread book, but it's the New Orleans cookbook that my I have family down in Baton Rouge, and they gave me the book a long time ago. And um, there's a po' boy roll recipe. It just kind of always, I don't know. I was like, wait, you can make that? And yeah. you do all this too? <laughs> now, like, there's wow. something that would interest me. <clears throat> yeah. More than a loaf of bread is that is that kind of roll, because yeah. I come from the Philadelphia cheesesteak kind of roll oh, area. Yeah, totally. And they're not all that different than the poor boy roll but it's something that you just can't find uh, out here very Totally, well. yeah. and people don't, yeah, I don't know if there's not enough demand for it or if people just don't, like, take the time to figure out the nuances between them, but yeah. they're similar doughs, and you just kind of treat them a little differently, and you get really wildly different results. It's pretty cool. All right, one more thing before we get on to the next segment, which is if you could go back now and pinpoint, you said you read that book, and all of a sudden you realized that maybe you were a baker and not a chef, which is not really kind of what you said, but you a route right. in the kitchen, yes. the bakery route instead of the chefy route, yeah. or the savory chef. What was what's the difference? Can you pinpoint like the mental difference between going down those paths? I mean, it's funny because I think they're similar in a lot of ways. I think there's it's a crazy difference to just like in baking, you're just doing prep for twelve straight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels a lot different than. When I was working the line or cooking, like you kind of have like these flows to your day. You've got like you go in in the morning, like you get your coffee, you start like prepping out all this stuff, planning things for the day, and then you have service, which is like this real fast pace, exciting, you know, five hours or however long depending mm-hmm. on the restaurant. 
And then you kind of have that wind down at the end of the night. You're making lists. You're, like, cleaning, doing all this stuff. Baking, it just kind of, like, it just goes all day. Right. Like, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. So you really have to be the kind of person who's okay with, like, doing the same motion 100 to 1,000 times. Uh-huh. Which is similar to cooking, but not exactly the well, same. Well, actually, right. I, think, I, I think that's the difference between that and cooking is the reason people go into cooking is because they have a little bit of ADD already in them. And, <laughs> you know, they go into this multiple, never-ending story of, like, mixing and cook, cooking and cutting and prepping and many different Fast angles. service, yeah. Yeah, yeah. many different angles to the day as opposed to a very structured day where you constantly do, you roll your... Your bread for three hours, the same exact movement. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not a very much of a of a cook mentality or, or philosophy. No, yeah, I totally agree. All right, when we come back, let's talk sourdough. There's so much angst about sourdough out there, and uh, it's one of my favorite pieces of toast to have in the morning. Is a nice piece. Who of doesn't sourdough. like sourdough? Exactly. On Cairo Radio, it's Ben Campbell and the Tom Douglas and Cherry Rotro in the kitchen, ninety-seven three FM. And we're back. <laughs> ben Campbell is here of Ben's Breads. And ben, uh, Ben's Breads has been a pop-up now for how long? Seven and a half years. Seven and a half years as a pop-up. And I understand you're pulling the trigger on a brick and mortar. We have, yeah. We're almost done building out a space in Finney Ridge up on Greenwood and 70th. Um, the building has been kind of slow to get going, but we're nearing the finish line, I think. Mm-hmm. Probably be spring. We'll be able to open alongside a few other businesses. So, In case you missed the last segment, Ben Campbell uh, started his bread career at Lark Restaurant, started baking for the restaurant. You've been doing your own thing. Uh, my niece-in-law works with you. Yeah, uh, Linnea. Who is, uh, yeah. Who's uh, quite the little perfectionist when it comes to baking. So, Yeah, her stuff's great. I yeah. mean, when it comes to the pastry stuff, a lot of times we just kind of step aside and let her do her thing, you know? The last time we saw you in this room, you were with Karen Springs Flowers. So uh, yeah. you are, are you repping them or do you just like them? I just like them. I would do it for free. You know? yeah. 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 No, I, I've been yeah, using their stuff ben, since they first don't opened. Say, don't say that. <laughs> Good boy. Sorry. I would, I would do that for lots We're of We're old money. enough yeah. to tell you don't yeah. do that. But yeah, I've been using them since they opened. We uh-huh. actually, my wife and my son, who was six months old at the time, uh, went and visited the mill right before they opened. And so they made my bald six-month-old son wear a, a, you net, know, like a hair protective net. hairnet. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I have a picture of. It's pretty cute. That's so. nice. All right, let's tackle sourdough. So many people started to become bread bakers during the pandemic. Yeah. And they bought all the tools. They have the razor knives. They have the baskets. They've got uh, the right flowers. And, yeah. uh, and you are an expert at sourdough. I make sourdough every day. I yeah. don't know if, how expert I that am. Makes but you I'm an expert on it. Yeah. Has it ever happened and it doesn't work? Oh, yeah. Oh, Uh-oh. good. Yeah. That's what we want to hear. It happens about. to everybody. Yeah, of course. It just doesn't happen to me very much, but right. it, it does happen. Yeah. So when that happens, is, is your starter dead? Is that, what, is that what's happening? Yeah, you know, a lot of times I'd say, like, people always look at problems. They'll be like, oh, I didn't let the bread rise long enough. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And it's almost always the starter. Okay. And it's like whether you've reached its, 
You're trying, you're trying to like hit this small window of peak activity where then you're using it, you're putting it in the dough when it's at that stage. Uh-huh. You know? And if you kind of miss that mark, it can, you can, it causes a lot of variations in your final product. I see. Yeah. I think that's huge. What you just said, I think is huge. Yeah. So right I mean, now, let's just put a picture on it. We've got the jar of starter in the refrigerator, right? You feed it. Mm-hmm. And then yep. how long after you feed it is its peak activity? Well, it just, I mean, that's the thing that's tricky about it. It, it can always change. If your flour, the flour can manipulate that amount of time. The temperature in the room can manipulate that time. How hot a water you used. Um, and how regularly you feed your starter. Like, for example, mine, if I leave it at room temp during the, the, the colder months, I can feed it probably two times a day. During the summer, it's more like three. But it's just because it's really active and it gets used a lot. You know, mm-hmm. if you put it in the fridge, it's kind of like makes it more dormant Dormant, and slows things down. So, you know, if you're pulling it out of the fridge, you feed it once, it might take a while to get there that first time. But if you leave it at room temp maybe for a day or two or give it a couple feedings, it'll really speed up. You know, it can be and anywhere that from in like, turn makes your bread lighter, airier, or or, or what? Yeah, it what can. Does, yeah, it, it can. can for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think generally, like, I think about starters as doing two things. One is it leavens the bread really well, meaning it makes it really nice and light and airy, and it also contributes flavor because mm-hmm. whatever the flavor, however much flavor you're developing in your starter, will end up being in the final product too. Right. Like so the you more get that sour gorgeous you let your sour dough. Get. Yeah. Yeah. The more sour you let your your starter get, the more sour your bread will end up. And the same thing the other way around. All right, so now you've got it all mixed. It's ready to go. Are you one to let it sit in the fridge for a day to help develop a crust, or what is your next process? Yeah, it depends on the bread. There's some, the smaller sandwich breads, like individual pieces, I actually like to do, I like to kind of do that same day, actually, with sourdough only, just by kind of doing that final shape and letting it just kind of proof, do that final proof. It only takes an hour or so. You've gotten it most of the way there. Mm-hmm. And then especially stuff that like would be wood-fired or things like that. Even pizza doughs work great like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas if I'm doing a big sourdough hearth loaf or something that I want really crusty, I'll, I like to do where I do the final shape and I put it in the fridge overnight. And that kind of develops this almost like pellicle, little outside mm-hmm. skin on it that mm-hmm. further develops your crust. And you just get this really nice, dark, burnished so when you take it out, do you, how long do you leave it out before you go in the oven? Uh, I usually time everything else I do so that I can just go straight away. From the fridge right, to yeah, the right oven? Yeah, right in the fridge to the oven, yeah. Cool. Makes it easier to score. The breads I make are, like those style breads have a lot of water in them, so they're really sticky more than I think most people do. And so it helps to keep it nice and cold to score it more cleanly. And you have to score it to release the steam, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll burst on its own if you don't. So it kind of depends on what you like. But um, I like both. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I usually do it just, it's decorative, but it also kind of like helps develop a better inside structure. I love the, my crust, uh, the, like especially the bottom crust of a loaf to just be thick and chewy. Is there a way, yeah. to, is there a way to get there, that, uh, a special way to get there? Or is that just part of what the type of dough that you're making? It depends partly on the kind of dough and how long it takes to bake. Those like sourdough breads, like in the tartine book and things like that, they always tell you to bake them in cast iron pans at home. And it all if you do it like that at home, it always gets that crust. Like, yeah. I feel like that works really well. <coughs> hot cast iron pan. Yeah, real hot cast iron pan, like kind of dangerous hot. <laughs> That's how we make them all at the Dahlia Bakery. We, we got rid of our huge bread oven. Yeah. And now we have 20 cast irons with lids, 20 kind of Dutch yeah. ovens. That Did we- you know I almost got that bread oven? Oh no, I, I didn't. Yeah, I was, I was almost did it, but I finally, I just like there were like too many things. It was like getting it to a storage facility, 
picking uh, it up in the middle of the night. It just kind of didn't end up working out. And but I've gone and seen it since. Now it's in its new home. It's in its new home up in yeah. uh, Mount Vernon, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And she's making beautiful bread up there. Yeah, it's a, a gorgeous oven. But you know, a typical commercial bread oven like we had is about nine feet wide about nine feet tall and then it's got a nine foot loader so at the end of the day it's yeah. 18 feet long uh with the loader and you need a special place oh my god yeah the logistics huge. of trying to find someone who could come in like the middle of the night with a big truck and a forklift it was like there were like two people in the western washington that could do that and it just okay. didn't really work out so we're talking to ben campbell a future home uh of your your brick and mortar bakery is 70th and Greenwood. Yep. And uh, so when I go to the stores now, like a Met Market, and look for Karen Springs bread, there's about 10 different varieties there. What would you tell people to start with? For like a the flour? flour? A flour, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're wanting to make really good bread, like Karen Springs makes, they actually have a flour blend on there that just says bread flour. Just plain. And that's a really great place to start. Honestly, if you just want to make really good fresh bread at home, like you don't have to get every single thing. Like just, you know, if you're already buying flour you like, or it's at the price point you like, just try to make it. Like AP flour you're saying? Yeah, Yeah. totally. You'll notice once you start making it that as you start using the better flour or the local fresher milled flours, you'll taste the difference. It definitely is better, but... Mm -hmm. You know, just make fresh bread, and fresh bread's great. But if you're practicing, that might be a good way to practice because it's yeah. about half the price of the Karen oh, yeah. Springs flour, yeah. And besides sourdough, what else are you going to make at your brick and mortar? We do sourdough English muffins. Those will be every morning. We're starting to build out a pastry program right now. They'll be ready, I think, when we open. And then, yeah, we'll have food and coffee and all sorts of stuff. Lovely. All right, thank you to Ben Campbell for joining us today. Yeah, learning keep a little on bit making more. those breads. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Super fun. When we come back... It's time to make some eggs in the artichokes. Great. You brought this in here because we're going to poach our eggs in cream and then break it and brown it. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Go ahead, try a piece of the sourdough bread. You're going to like it very much. It does not taste the same as all the regular breads. It's got a special sourdough taste. I don't eat no ham in it. Put the high in the less I'm wrong. Come on, come on. Don't fight. Do you eat them? No tip. Do you eat them? Uh-uh. Not at all. Okay. I don't eat no ham in it. Okay, it's the Hot Stove Kitchen. Chef Thierry Rotero and I are... Bickering. I would say we're bickering over what medium is and medium high is and what high is. We're bickering over the, the, the height I'm, of our flame. I'm on. just looking at the pan, that's all. Okay, so Pam, tell us about this dish that you were having us cook. Last week, we talked about artichokes with Napoleon food owner Tony Magnano. So I was looking, I want to eat artichokes again, canned artichokes. And oh, good sound effect. <laughs> And uh, when I was doing my search, this crazy recipe came up from Molly Baz. I'm one of the subscribers to her site. Right. She's got a wonderful kind of crazy modern uh, recipe site and club. She used to be with Bon Appetit, and then now she's a cookbook author and blogger, blah, 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 blah. And so she had this recipe for cream frying eggs and artichokes together mm-hmm. and that blew my mind i never heard of cream frying uh-huh. and uh, you didn't seem surprised about the technique and so i asked you to cook it and you guys are adorable 
<laughs> watching you try to <laughs> conquer this cream frying. Thank you for the sound effects. So for the for two professional cooks, the only argument we had is really medium what high. is medium and what is high, and how do you get in between the two? So that's okay. the only thing that we were yeah. bickering okay. about. Okay, I think mine would have been a little bit longer cooking. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah, so it would have been... But the result... So it would have ended up blonde instead of brown the way it's no. supposed to be. Yes. So the, the recipe Maybe. starts with uh, the cream right. in the pan. Yes. And then... Are you trying to get us back to the recipe? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we took the artichokes and uh, we dried them, right? We yeah. put them on How paper towels. It says to get all the oil and moisture off of the canned artichokes. Uh, the oil is much more difficult, obviously, than the yeah. water because... Uh, it wants to glaze it. And then uh, you put the artichokes in to the cream that's on medium-high. You put the two eggs in. See, that was the part that surprised me, I guess, was that the eggs took the same amount of time as browning the artichokes. Makes sense now that I've done it. Uh, you sprinkle the chopped garlic over top, and you cook for four to five minutes. And what happens is what we have in our pan is that the cream has browned and broken. So when I say broken, it's separated from the butter fat and the whey in the cream. So cream is essentially just whole milk that has uh, more of the fat. goodness left in it, the fat <laughs> left in it, right? So if you were to beat cream and make whipped cream and then beat it further, it turns into, you know, butter separates butter. into butter and whey. And that's essentially what we've done here, but it's browned at the same time. And the only difference is, Tom didn't want to listen to this, but you're supposed to build your pan and then put it on the fire as opposed to put it on the fire, boil the cream and... Like he did. But I was trying to tell him that, but he didn't want to listen. So. Uh, but anyway, it wouldn't make much of a difference, but it'll make a little bit of difference. You heard that, Tom? I, I heard you, Chef. It's so, the first time is what we recommend is to make the recipe the way the chef wrote it. Whoever wrote that recipe? Molly Baz. At this point, I've got this beautiful brown bottom. It looks like anyway. I haven't looked underneath, <laughs> but I've got this brown bottom. I still have a little bit of a runniness left in the yolk, but the whites are cooked, which is exactly what the recipe says. So it seems to me like it was cooked right at the right amount. Uh-oh, I feel some you, sticking. And then you, then you take the artichokes, and they are browned on the bottom. The way, I, the, way the picture looks in the, uh, on the website is that you put the artichokes on. You kind of get them out. See, that's, that looks perfect yeah, that's there. Perfect. Okay? And we're going to... Uh, I like the browning on the artichokes. We're going to put them on a circle on the plate, and then we're going to take the egg part... In the middle, because it makes it look the, the picture on the recipe makes it look like it was just slid out of the pan. But then you wouldn't see the brown side of the I know. First of all, it would not be able to slide because of that cooking the method the way you're doing it. It wouldn't be able to slide out of the pan, and you wouldn't see the brown part unless you had a nonstick pan. Maybe, maybe that maybe, would work. Maybe so with the nonstick. Yeah, uh, the recipe called for nonstick. Oh, did it? <laughs> Guess well, if what? You talk to all Guess club, what? They would we qualify as chef on one side because we actually recognize that if you had a nonstick, it I would think work you better. Qualify as a and then chef. we're called on a bean chef because we didn't read the recipe correctly. Oh what? no, it's, it looks perfect to me. It looks so perfect. I don't know what everyone is yacking about. What would you else could you cream fry? Do you think? Besides well, I think an you egg? could do just about anything as long as you get cream. You start with the cream. And then you can build anything around that. So you could it could be potatoes. a butter substitute. If you had right. some blanched totally. potatoes, your potato would have to be pre-cooked. You know, if you had some blanched potatoes or if you had some sweet potato, for example, that was pre-roasted or, or blanched, you could use that. You could use any vegetable in the spring. Peas come to mind, uh, any kind of thing, and keep adding the egg in the middle. It would be a great breakfast, if you ask me. You could do chopped bacon that's already pre-rendered. could use the rendered fat 
to put in your cream. Don't tell, Whoa. Don't tell anybody I said that. But you'd ha- you would only use it for something that uh, only needed to cook for a short amount of time. Or something that's pre-cooked. So you couldn't I mean, start the with the bro- raw broccoli or raw no, mushroom. No, it wouldn't with, cook. You could start with raw broccoli. No, Chef you would and I not. disagree on this. I disagree entirely with that. Yeah. That's bogus. You just pre-roast your vegetable, and then you put them in the, in the pan. This is not meant to cook. She said could. She didn't say should. You could start with raw broccoli. <laughs> well, I guess you could do anything in life. But, Thank you very much, Chef. Yeah, but I cook, knew I was correct on this If you one. put your raw broccoli in there, it's going to be the same way when you eat it no. five minutes later. I disagree with oh, Chef on this. Sacrilege. Uh, the, <laughs> what am I even trying? Because, anyway. Because you're making an This is point. a great way to use your leftovers in your refrigerator. You open the refrigerator door and you go, oh, I got this two roasted carrots. I got a little bit of broccoli. I got some sauteed mushroom. But I'm out of butter. If you don't have that in your fridge as leftover, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> anyway, you have that leftovers. That's a great way to use them. Put it in the cream. Put your egg in the middle and then bake the, cook the whole thing and you'll have exactly the same results. But if you start with raw mushroom and raw broccoli and raw carrots, you'll have the same product when you're done with your eggs because it's not meant to cook, it's meant to warm up. It, you know, that's why they use the artichoke. That's why they use the canned artichoke. Correct, yeah. canned artichoke. Those are cooked already. Yeah, good point. It wouldn't work with the raw. And All then right, the I think we did justice. I think, uh, yeah, I think there's a f- certainly a few vegetables. I think a thin slice raw broccoli would work. Peas, corn, things like that would work. He's coming around. Where Harry. you don't have to. Uh, I want to do mushrooms in it. it. Yeah, salted mushroom would work. But really, what, the point is the cream, right? The, yeah. the, yes. the, the technique that's different is the cream, and you have to look at it like it's butter. Essentially, what it is, and don't make three times. A, don't make that dish three times a day. Okay, one time is <laughs> enough, and don't have that every morning for breakfast. It's a beautiful thing. That's this is not bad for you if you don't eat it every day. How's that? So, what else do you do with leftover cream, Chef? Uh, over the holidays, uh, I ended up with two partial pints of cream leftover, and you know, generally they have a pretty good shelf life if you look at them. Right. At least when I buy them, they're usually three, four weeks out uh, before you need right. to chuck them. Uh, so you can pull that out of the fridge and make creme fraiche? I have uh, three half pints started in my freezer. Then mm-hmm. I have not been able to finish on time, and I put it in the freezer. So you can freeze the cream. I freeze the cream. Right. And then what I do is when I decide I'm going to make, a, I don't know, potato leek cream soup, for example, or uh, a seafood bisque or something like that, mm-hmm. that's when I pull all that stuff out of the freezer and use that cream. Mm-hmm. Because that cream is perfectly fine. Yeah, it's and just it freezes not, beautifully. It's better to put it in the freezer than getting out of date, like, you know, and two months after the date, you go, okay, finally I can throw this thing away. All and right, what just, else? Creme fraiche? I never, like how it gets that little sour. I've never froze cream. Uh, if you freeze cream, you no, change. No, I'm talking about just leftover cream. Oh, leftover, but, yeah. definitely creme fraiche, absolutely. And how long do you have to let that sit on the counter? Two days. It's two fine. days. In your house, two days would be more than fine. Okay. After you add vinegar? Or lemon. You don't put vinegar. You just use sour cream. Oh. Just a dollop of oh, flour. To um, start I'm, the... I'm sorry. Not sour cream. What's the other cream? Um, yeah, sour cream. Buttermilk. Uh, buttermilk. Thank you. I was like, this is not sour cream. Buttermilk. Two cups of buttermilk per quarter and a half of um, heavy cream. So, obviously, you Sour shrink, cream works, too. Shrink that down. Yeah. And then you bring it to 80 degrees temperature, and then you just put it away. At room temp. You put it away in a... In a in a container on room time, cheesecloth on top, keep it on your shelf in your kitchen, and you'll have creme fraiche in, two, in a day to two days. And then what you do is you put a spoon in it. That's how you can tell if it's really thick or not. 
And then you go get caviar. <laughs> no. If you want to make the creme fraiche last even longer after that, shelf life, you take the crust that's on top off, and then you take the cream, you take the cream with a spoon off the container all the way down to the whey and get rid of the whey. Because the whey is actually what makes things go bad. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> She's a big talker sometimes. Yeah. I do believe that you're going to make some sourdough, and that I do believe that I actually might make some sourdough because I didn't realize how important the starter was to the variancy of the, of the bread itself. Yeah, I, I, I thought a starter is a starter. You, you know, you feed it, you don't, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I didn't really think about it that much. This is serious. Making bread is a commitment. You know what it's time for, Chef? Tasty trivia? Yeah, it's brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs, made right there in Ballard, my warehouse. And uh, we are going to take a break before we do this because everyone's going to want to scoot up to the radio, turn the volume up, and play along. That's the Hot Stove Society Show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door? With a thousand million questions about hate and death. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Love Rub with Love Spice Rub Blends, an important uh, spice rub to have in your pantry, don't you think, Chef? I have all of them. Your wife uses the veggie rub on popcorn, I understand. That's right. Yeah. She used them last night on the Golden Globe. On the globe itself. That's right. (laughs) Awesome. They can either inspire a meal or enhance one. Our family of rubs now includes 20 different flavors, four sauces, and a terrific mustard, which, by the way, I went to Shoreline Central Market to buy some shallot mustard. My toasted, they don't carry it anymore. I was despondent. You can find Rub With Love locally at fine realtors like, uh, realtors, retailers like Hagen Foods, Bartell Drugs, Metropolitan Markets, Shoreline Markets. Uh, are you uh, someplace else other than the Pacific Northwest? Check out Northwest Seafood in Gainesville, Florida, Nelson's Meats in Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Gataletto's Seafoods in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Wow. You are, you are mushroom, all over the map. The mushroom capital of the world. Have you ever driven through Westchester and seen all the mushroom houses? Wow, I want yeah, to. It's spectacular. There is actually a mushroom capital of the world? It used to be called the mushroom. They still have signs. I thought the Pacific Northwest was the capital mushroom of the world. Uh, not of, it's not of uh, cultivated mushrooms. Oh. All right, Pamela, tell people how to play the game and uh, who's going to be our winner today and who are we playing against. I feel like we have some fresh... Mm, Aaron Covington is in the house, having here, just yeah. uh, survived cooking a beautiful dinner for Jim Maurer. Yeah. And so we've invited her to join us. Each of the three contestants are getting five questions, and somebody's going to get the most right. Exactly. And Aaron, by the way, oh, t- Chef, tell us yeah, who Aaron, Aaron is. Aaron used to be uh, our lead server at, uh, at Rovers for eight years, and believe me, I am in fear right now. We're not going <laughs> to really? make this. I don't she even know what I'm playing. She seems a little buttoned up. Like she she's, is, she's very smart. Yeah. Too smart for my own good. Yeah. And Tell she has that. a house in Spain. Yes. I oh. mean, how co- she speaks in English and Spanish. Clear? Two languages? Clear. Me too. And French. She speaks some French too, a little bit. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get started. 
All right, chef in the hat. Okay. Number one. What is the name of the edible mollusk found off the coast of California that is shaped like a human ear? Look at that look you're giving like me. Like a human gear? Human ear. Ear. Oh, ear. ear. I thought gear. I was like, what? It's what I was working on at my workout <laughs> it's this morning. The, um, the famous it's what I was working uh, on at my workout this morning. Sh- talking. <laughs> you know on it. Your, it's what you were what? Working on at my workout this morning. I do know what it is. I know. Abzalone. Oh, yes. <laughs> Abalone. Thank you. What's ab- Abzalone for you? Abs. Abs. Uh, I know you can't see them, but abs I, was, only. I was working on them. Number two, multiple choice. Is the cashew native to Pennsylvania, Germany, or Brazil? Brazil. Of course it is. Um, Pennsylvania. <laughs> number three, please tell us what Donner kebab is. No idea. Uh, meat on uh, 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 meat cooked on a vertical rotisserie that's been seasoned. Like gyros. Like gyros. Like yeah. yeah. Donner kebab. That's called. A, can you repeat the name? Donner kebab. Donner kebab. Donner kebab. <clears throat> Um, I think that's a made-up word in English. <laughs> what it's is German. the other common name for Filbert? Noisette. Oh, well, it's a French that. word. She said common name. <laughs> common name, noisette. Everybody knows that word. You, you went above and beyond. <laughs> Thank you. We'll, get, we'll give you that. It's hazelnut in English. Uh, and what does the French term partie noble refer to? Hmm. I'm going to have to guess that one. <laughs> I like that. That's a French word. I like it. I'm going to guess that it's... Um, if you don't know, who knows, chef? I know, exactly. Um, maybe something to do with a beautiful banquet and uh, mm. something nicely decorated and it very is noble. The, the parts of an animal eaten by the hunters immediately after a successful oh, kill. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course. Wow, chef, you couldn't have been more incorrect. I know. It's like I had no... Oh, yes. Three out of five. Hey, three out of five. You're not Aaron, taking the first one. Aaron, th- oh, two out of five. Thank you. You're keeping True score. or false? The leaves and vines of a tomato plant are toxic. True. Exactly. <laughs> what popular Chinese cooking utensil is shaped like a huge contact lens? A watch. Yes. <laughs> Uh, what kind of gimmies here? <laughs> that was, you could what? make it a little bit harder. No, no, uh, don't, don't. She's don't. well educated. Oh, this one's really she's hard. Educated person. Uh, what well. is the name of the smooth Mediterranean paste made from sesame seeds? Mediterranean uh, tahini. Yep. Uh, screaming to the forefront. Yep. Uh, ice cream was not invented until the 18th century. The frozen confection available before that was sherbet, also called sorbet. Which culture invented this confection? Was it the Turks, the Arabs, or the Chinese? I have no idea, so I'm going to go Chinese. Yes! She's smart, Beautiful. smart, smart. It's, it's a guess. And finally... Um, this is multiple choice. Is couscous made from wheat, barley, or lentils? Wheat. <laughs> wow. Five out, five. five out of five. Wow. Chef, I think we got hosed. No, I told you. I mean, I think yeah. those questions might have been a little stacked for you. Um, Tom Douglas. Oh, you should see the one Tom's going to get. <laughs> A marshmallow is a highly mandible food. What does mandible mean? 
Hold, it's it hold by a man. Put it on a mandolin. You can shred it into a uh, little. No. A mandible. Uh, let's see. Uh, elastic. Close. We'll give it to you. It means chewable. Chewable. Yeah. Chewable. Uh, what is a brochette? Something you put on your lapel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a pointed culinary skewer yeah. or a dish of skewered meats. Yeah. Oh, you knew that, but yeah. you were just goofing around. A kebab. Okay. The Dutch doctor who invented gin in the mid-17th century claimed it cured a variety of ailments because of what ingredient? Juniper. Yes. Number four, what are the dominant seasonings in Korean kimchi? Well, the most dominant one is chili. There's a... Yes. Can you name any others? Salt. <laughs> That's not a... We were, <laughs> we're looking for garlic, horseradish, and ginger. Huh. As the trademark. Well, you know, kimchi is different in every household. I know, so but this is Korean. Don't be putting your kimchi <laughs> on my doorstep. When, when did uh, Louis, and finally, when did Louis Pasteur develop the process that made milk safe to drink? Multiple choice, <laughs> 1862, 1902, or 1951? 1902. 1862. Wow, Whoa. right before the Civil War. Who knew? Who knew? Good yeah. thing. Maybe that's Four out of we five. Not Aaron, bad. Aaron, Aaron is our winner. Congratulations. Aaron, you get to choose any three rubs out of the gift shop, which will be open in just a minute after I do this final read. And uh, there's a gift box over there you can fill up. And, you know, if I were you, I would not give it to your father-in-law. <laughs> if you want to be part of the show, you can come to the studio here at the hot stove and uh, join the taping on or join the taping on YouTube Live. Find us at Tom Douglas and Company. Also, remember, if you miss any episode of the Hot Stove Society Show in Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe to your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend. I wish you could smell what I'm smelling. Mm, mm, mm. You bite the fry, the fry bites back, my man. Damn, damn. Crispy crunch. Look at the bacon. Get yourself that double cheeseburger.